I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. When recovered from a threat, people tend to become more extreme versions of themselves. You'll have read countless articles in recent months about the reshaping of the world as we know it, about changes to our society that are set to become a permanent echo of this pandemic long after it ends, economists musing over the death knell being rung for globalisation, psychologists suggesting that working from home will become the new normal, and the presumption that our newfound appreciation for our healthcare workers will stick. But how much of this supposed new world order will actually all fade away in the coming months and years? I think we're really having to question our values and ethics. And I think at a time like this, when we are faced with thoughts around our own mortality, there's a little bit of a return to what my dad would call old-fashioned values. If you've been with us from the start, you'll recognise that as the voice of Christian Hunt. In episode one of the podcast, we spoke to Christian about our behaviour during lockdown and about the heroes and villains of this pandemic. But for this episode, I wanted to dig into how we might or might not be permanently changed after this is all over. Rory Sutherland is the UK vice chairman of the marketing agency Ogilvy. After 20 years as a copywriter and creative director for the company, Rory set up its behavioural science practice, which looks for unseen opportunities in consumer behaviour and how they affect decision making. Chapter 1. Following the crowd. So the question is, once this is all over, will the world as we know it be changed, for good or for bad, forever? Or will things simply revert back to normal? We're creatures of habit, after all. But that could tell you two things. It might tell you that a few months is hardly enough time to change everything that's been ingrained in us over millennia. But equally, they say it takes 66 days to build a new habit, and we've certainly had long enough for that to have happened. Much of this boils down to what everyone else ends up doing. We like to follow the crowd. So on which side of this debate does Rory sit? I'm 90% with Mark Ritson on this, where the answer is yes. First of all, you know, human nature is uh, doesn't change all that much or all that rapidly. So the idea that we're going to emerge with, you know, a new kind of human uh, is an attractive self-delusion, really. And you get a lot of this. You get a lot of this in Futurology, which is people essentially use Futurology as wish fulfillment or, you know, so it's kind of like, you know, as I was joking the other day, you know, well, after the lockdown, you know, fat, curly-haired people are going to be treated with a lot more respect and are going to get um, uh, leading roles in Hollywood movies. Actually, in fairness, narcos, you did get a fat, curly-haired guy. But I, but I mean, that, you know, a lot of that is very dangerous because it's assuming that, uh, you know, things change more than they do at a fundamental level and to a great extent they don't. On the other hand, although human instinct is kind of innate, the way it finds expression varies. So, for example, although you could say that humans are innately status-seeking, the means they choose to project status do change significantly. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting things among, say, the urban young is that the car and car ownership has almost lost all status value. Hmm. When I first started working in advertising in the 1980s, you probably knew what car 15 of your colleagues drove, either because you'd seen it or because they talked about it. And I can honestly say that with one exception, I don't know any of my colleagues' cars at all, nor do they talk about it very much. It's almost become a kind of commodity thing if you're in a sort of large urban setting where with lots of public transport alternatives. Indeed, not owning a car can be pretty cool or owning a gratuitously expensive bicycle might be much cooler than owning a car. 
So the, the status currency has changed significantly. And actually, one of the people who presciently noticed this was the evolutionary psychologist Jeffrey Miller, who made the point that social media change what we signal. So, for example, I would say that among the social media generation, travel became much, much more powerful as a status signaling tool because you could actually tweet what were, in 1970, your holiday slides live from the destination. So while all your friends were at work, you could show a picture of your legs tanning uh, in front of one of those sort of palm-roofed shacks on a, on a Pacific beach, which, you know, okay, people sent postcards, but this was an order of magnitude uh, in terms of the signaling power that was gained by particularly exotic travel. Whereas automotive status signaling, you know, in a large city setting, people don't even see your car. You know, it's not like growing up in the country where all your mates ride around in it and you park it outside your house and all this sort of stuff. You know, one of the reasons I suspect that car status signaling might have diminished in London is because uh, the parking situation in London is so dire that no one can park within 200 yards of their bloody house anyway. So you can just pretend that the car outside is your car if you want to. And there's something utterly tragic about seeing an utterly tragic and hilarious at the same time about seeing a very expensive car stuck in traffic. I think I've always I've always enjoyed that. You think all that money and you're not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, what, what's, of course, comical is that in a completely logical world, Porsche sales would be concentrated in areas of the country with great open roads. You know, Inverness and the A9 would be packed with Porsches, whereas London, everybody would drive a small utilitarian thing. But it doesn't work like that. I mean, I agree with you that, I mean, having a supercar in London is, is, is in fact, a self-handicap uh, because, I mean, its performance is irrelevant and its low ground clearance is a hindrance. I mean, it's a disaster. So the fundamental motivation doesn't change. The means of expression do. But where I think Ritson's a bit too pessimistic, and he's right to be pessimistic because marketing is full of snake oil salesmen saying, in the future, this is going to happen. Look, there is a shop in Denmark where they sell cornflakes in brown paper bags. Uh, I think this is the future of grocery retailing. You know, And there's a huge tendency for people to take the outliers of uh, you know, free market capitalism and assume that they're somehow representative of the future, whereas there have always been very strange shops in Copenhagen and always will be, you know. On the other hand, I think where we've got to be careful, and I'm, you know, I, I'm, it's very rare for me to disagree with Mark, and I'm only disagreeing in, with him to the extent of sort of 10, 15% of behaviour, is there are some behaviours which once adopted never reverse, okay? So I, I gave a talk yesterday where I talked about um, there are bad ideas and good ideas, or silly ideas and, and, and good ideas, which are a bit like SARS-1. In other words, they very rapidly grow, and everybody predicts it's going to be huge, and then they just as rapidly die off. Sometimes that's because an element of novelty is a component of their success, and therefore when the novelty wears off, the desire wears off. Or it may be that rarity is an element of their popularity. And if you make them too ubiquitous, you know, argued often of Levi 501s, that when your dad started wearing them, it was the beginning of a problem. Again, you can reach a point where it's almost like herd immunity in terms of the, uh, the, the plotting of the, uh, of the spread of the behavior. But it's worth remembering there are behaviors which once adopted are never reversed. Now, that doesn't mean that 100% of people adopt the behavior. It merely means that they're quite sticky. An example of that would be, you know, I don't know of anybody. I'm sure they exist, but I don't know anybody who has owned a mobile phone and has gotten rid of it. 
Okay, you know, so even people who retire generally keep a mobile phone if they had one while they were working, even though they, you know, they're they're at home far more often and so forth. Okay, now you may know of someone. I've never come across anybody. Microwaves. One person I know had a microwave and then stopped, but I think it was because of their fancy fitted kitchen. I don't think it was, um, you know. I, I mean, my guess would be if you don't have a microwave, then you probably never will have one. Okay, it's a one-way street. Now, some behaviours, solar panels. I suspect, you know, if we take that, that's a bit of a one-way street because once you, if you, if you take the two biggest drivers of human behaviour, which are habit and social copying. What you can do in complexity theory is you can move from one equilibrium to another equilibrium. Nobody does it. Therefore, I've never done it before. Therefore, I'm not going to start doing it. And because nobody else is doing it, I have no impetus to do it because to do it would look weird. OK, which would be to put solar panels on your house 10 years ago. OK, and then you reach a tipping point where. Now, the great thing about about the virus is everybody's had a kind of crash course in virology and complexity theory, and they understand that actually it's the second order thing that matters, you know, the rate of increase in the rate of increase. What you see in a lot of things, and this would include attitudes to homosexuality, it would include attitudes to drink driving, broadband internet adoption, there's a kind of sigmoid curve where it's slow, fast, slow. In other words, it starts off slowly. Now, sometimes things start off fast and die equally fast. Sometimes things start off slow, then they reach kind of tipping point where they reach the point of being no longer weird. And then they reach a point where the norm is to do it rather than not to do it. And then eventually you hit a ceiling. Now, the ceiling won't necessarily be at 100% penetration. The ceiling might be at 10% penetration. But nonetheless, the same shape manifests itself. And by the way, you might see this in, you know, areas of virology. You know, as you hit herd immunity, it's slow, fast. And then it hits a ceiling as the virus runs out of susceptible individuals. OK, now, by the way, this is very important for the measurement of advertising, because um, if you'd done advertising in the early days against drink driving, the traditional approach to measuring the efficacy of advertising assumes methodological individualism, that decisions are taken individually and behavior change proceeds linearly. And it doesn't. So what you might say is my first 10 years of drink driving advertising were totally ineffectual. You know, we hardly had any, you know, we hardly made a dent until the very end. And then the next 10 years of drink driving advertising were unbelievably effective. You know, suddenly nobody was driving pissed. And if you don't understand this sigmoid curve, I think there's a huge danger that you could write off the efficacy of advertising too soon. Because it's not that it doesn't work, it's that it is yet to work. And so I think, I, you know, that, I mean, it's very interesting. You probably, I'm, I'm guessing your age, but you're in your 40s, I guess. And, right. um, you know, you probably remember some of your parents' generation would drive pissed. Yes. Now, a lot of those, you know, a lot of those people are dead and some of them got too old. But what happened, it's partly a cohort effect. You know, as Max Planck says, progress happens one funeral at a time. Um, and in the case of drink driving, true to of attitudes to homosexuality, you know, I, I get a bit annoyed when, you know, someone on Twitter goes absolutely bananas because someone age 76 uses a mildly homophobic term, you know. OK, that's always there is always a late resistor 
crowd of people who are older, less susceptible to new ideas because we become less open as we get older. You know, just, just wait five years and shut up. You know, it's, you know you've won that one, right? In, in, in the UK, in civilised circles, at least, OK? So, you know, what would happen with drink driving would be it was a norm to do it. Then there was a change and suddenly, A, a new generation came up among my children's generation. I've never done it. My father didn't do it, actually, ever. Largely because my mum drove. I mean, he was no, he wouldn't have done it, but my mum drank less than he did anyway, and he didn't drink very much. Have I done it maybe once in my entire life? Borderline. That's the limit. Okay. To my kids, it's practically on a par with paedophilia. You know, driving drunk. Mm. I mean, it's completely. Uh, you know, even among boozy people, it's considered absolutely uh, beyond the pale. And so, when you understand this sigmoid curve, you can understand in complexity theory that a, a dramatic impetus, external impetus particularly set when simultaneous, can create a new equilibrium. So, you know, the old equilibrium was, Waha, I've only had four pints and half a bottle of claret, so I'm fine to drive home. That is not the new equilibrium. And sometimes you have to force everybody simultaneously to adopt the new behavior for people to discover why the new behavior is good. So there was no point in owning a fax machine if you, were, you had the only one. An extraordinary, a mature student friend of mine uh, when I was at university, owned a fax machine in the 1970s. I said, they didn't exist. I'd never heard of a fax machine in the 1970s. He said, no, no, they took about, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes to send a page. And he said, I had an office in London and an office in Los Angeles, and we'd send legal contracts from one office to the other. But they said, we didn't know, we hardly knew anybody else with a fax, except maybe our lawyer. And so each fax machine was basically connected to two other fax machines. And suddenly, when the thing became interconnected and, and reached a certain scale, then the fax became doubly, and it, it, it was, uh, what is it called? The, the, the value of a network is the square of the number of nodes or something, isn't it? It's somebody's law, and I can't remember who it is. I think with, with video conferencing, it's one of those things that the benefits only become fully apparent when lots of people do it in the same way as owning a fax machine. You know, a fax machine was a massively niche piece of equipment uh, in the 1970s. And then in the late 80s, it was a, it was the main form of business communication to an extent. Chapter two, the meaning of value. Rory's comments on status are interesting as they have implications for the way we portray what's considered cool in our stories. Think about what that could mean for character design. Why does that person act in a certain way? What status are they looking to achieve? And what vehicle are they using to achieve it? It reminds me of the motto our last guest, Pete Gamori, lives by, that good writing should be both timeless and timely. Touching on his comment that some behaviours, once adopted, never reverse, allows us to understand a critical part of character development, Interesting characters are those who can stray from their past behaviours, evolve, devolve, but who always hang on to those subtle characteristics that define them. Though you might want to break expectations from time to time, you don't want an audience or a reader to think, that's ridiculous, that character would never have done that. So from what Rory said, it's likely we'll go back to normal at the end of this pandemic. But to take a less optimistic view for a moment, could we see an increase in poor behaviours as people have been prevented from engaging in community settings for so long? The standard explanation is people are going to be looking for value, you know, a new sense of responsibility. And of course, it's not as if the end of the First World War led to a fantastically worthy, responsible behaviour in the 1920s. And so what I think happens often is, and my colleague Chris Graves in New York says this, when recovered from a threat, people tend to become more extreme versions of themselves. 
And so my first lesson in you know behavioral science is don't assume that because there's a shop in Denmark that this is a trend. Uh, the, you know, the second thing is don't extrapolate in a linear way because it ain't linear. Thirdly, some things by dint of things not being linear take ages to change and then change very rapidly. And the fourth thing is that actually there aren't trends, there are vectors. There's a great bit of advice, and I wish I could remember the person who told me it. He said, everybody talks about trends. And in fact, what you tend to see in behavior is vectors. In other words, the level of variance increases. So what will often happen after a crisis is people become very, very stingy in some areas and very extravagant in others. It was famously documented after the 2008 financial crisis, the lipstick effect which is people weren't going to splurge, but they still wanted a treat. So, you know, premium branded Chanel lipsticks did really, really well. Now, it's, it's hard. It's, it, I mean, I might argue to some degree, apart from certain comments like, to be honest, I think most of forecasting is really telling you what not to assume. It's not telling you what's going to happen because that's unknowable, simply because human, the interconnectedness of human behavior makes it very, very difficult to model or predict. But I think I think the real lessons in forecasting are saying, you know, don't allow economists to come in and say because of debt to GDP ratios, consumer behavior is going to become, you know, all about price and value, because that's too easy. There'll be a bit of that. That's that's not wholly untrue. But if you based, um, you know, if you base the actions of Louis Vuitton on that um, assumption, you'd make some very very bad decisions. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, you talked about the, if you read The Economist, you could get easily caught up in this because debt as a percentage of GDP was a massive deal back in 2008. Spain, you know, Spain was off the chart and obviously had a huge um, problem. Then you had oil producing com- uh, countries that did very, very well. And then in the same publication, you get things like the Big Mac Index yes. and you get, the, you know, the shortness of a woman's skirt is is a, a measure of how confident we're feeling in terms of the economy. You know, you could tell yourself, you could tie yourself up knots if you believed all of this stuff no and the the best thing you can say is obviously you know uh yes okay people are looking for value but what what does value actually mean apart from anything else would i predict a fall off in the popularity of dyson goods no not really because you know the, the the standard economist's assumption of value being price versus functionality uh, is a, is you know to a great extent pretty dumb. So you know, in a sense, a Dyson is an example of value seeking behaviour. I mean, even a five hundred pound hairdryer, right? Which I'll be absolutely honest with you, and I say this to everybody: if Dyson had come to me and said, "I think there's a market for a nine hundred pound vacuum cleaner," you know, ten or fifteen years ago, I would have told him to basically don't give up the day job. Jim, because it's a distress purchase, it's a grudge purchase. People basically try and blag one off their parents if they can. You only buy one when the old one breaks, so sales are going to be incredibly slow. Um, you or you might buy one if you if you're forced to move into you know if you move out of rental property. And then I go well anyway. Anybody who could spend nine hundred quid on a vacuum cleaner probably employs a cleaner anyway, so they don't even know what their vacuum cleaner looks like. Right. And I could have trotted that all out. This is why the book's called Alchemy. And it makes absolutely perfect sense. But it's also 100 percent wrong. And we have a fundamental problem with narrative bias, which is once something makes sense, we not only think it's true, which may be a false assumption. We also think it's completely true. It's the whole truth, which is almost definitely a, a false assumption. And so this narrative bias where we go, oh, I've got a convincing story for this, which makes everybody sound rational and sensible. Tick, 
check, right? No more thinking required. And in fact, the real why is much more complicated. Now, I'd argue, I think, my dad, who's stingy as fuck, okay, in, in many respects. I mean, you know, if you took him to Subway, he'd be scandalized by the prices, right? Okay. <laughs> and yet he owns two Dysons, right? I mean, you know, you know, I mean, I, you know, I practically have to say, look, Dad, you're 89, okay, spending 10 quid extra on something, you know, it's really not a big, you know, but the fascinating thing there is, in a sense, a Dyson is value-seeking behavior because it's having less and better. And that, you know, that might be one of the behaviors you see. And so people are going, okay, I'm going to have, can have one now this is happening by the way already just in case you think i'm just bullshitting one of the things noticed in china in coffee buying behavior after lockdown obviously a trip to a coffee shop involves you know a small but you know non-negligible element of risk so what people do is they do it less but when they go in it they buy something extravagant so in other words they visit less frequently but they're much more likely to have something with marshmallows on top on the basis of maybe might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb uh, you know, if I'm going to take this mild risk, I might as well get something really distinctive out of it. And so you'll see, again, you know, even something as sort of supposedly simple as value, which, by the way, is usually taken to mean low prices. And actually, if you look at generally, um, uh, Google has a wonderful slide where it shows that searches for better have continually grown all the way through the financial crisis, by the way. So this trend actually happens pretty much at 2008. There's a crossover where searches for best outgrow and overtake searches for cheapest. And you see this line and it continues and continues and continues to grow. And the 2008 financial crisis does not change that at all. Now, when you think about that, that's a, that's a few billion behaviors aggregated into that chart. Now, you know, some of it could be confounding variables. It could reflect that people started off searching disproportionately much for flights, where people do tend to look for cheap because they see it as a commodity mistakenly. OK, and now they're looking for dishwashers or they're looking for webcams or something, which is much more complicated. But even so, one of the daftest things that economics does is it teaches businesses to think that Despite the fact, by the way, that, you know, it's not like economists all drive around in bloody Citroen 2 CVs, is it, you know? But it teaches businesses to think that people want more of slightly crappier things at a lower price, when quite often what consumers are really looking for is less things of a slightly higher quality of a higher price, which might last longer, for instance. It's interesting. If I think about some of the you know, quote unquote, extravagant purchases that I've made that make no sense when I could. You buy. never regret them, by the way, do you? No, no, you don't. Never it's regret. Really interesting. No, is that fascinating? Yeah, and that's partly sunk cost bias, by the way, I think. But I, that was one of the lessons taught to me by someone at Littlewoods about ten years ago. They said, you know, one reason for one reason, weirdly, for spending more on something is the more you spend on something, the less likely you are to psychologically to regret it. And if you look at consumer behaviour as as regret minimization. A lot of things make sense. You know, our preference for brands makes sense because if you buy a branded thing, both regret and self-blame are reduced. You know, if you buy a Ford car and it conks out, okay, you blame Ford. If you go and buy the you know, problem with being a niche car brand like Alfa Romeo is if you buy an Alfa Romeo and it conks out, you blame yourself for buying an Alfa Romeo. <laughs> Chapter three making a comeback. It's intriguing to unpack what motivates a person 
how cost alone seems to allow us to pardon our spending behaviours, and to know that when something appears to make absolute sense, we think it's completely true, even if it's a false assumption. These two indicators help us to understand how we can make a character's why much more complicated. Also, in considering behaviour as vectors rather than trends, we understand that people can often act in a way that seems entirely contrary to what's going on in the world around them. That setting doesn't always influence behaviour. Picking back up on Rory's assertion that the two drivers of human behaviour are habit and social copying, how can that understanding of the way we act help us finely tune our character design? We copy other people in, in all sorts of ways, some of them healthy, some of them I think not very healthy. By the way, I'm not one of these sort of Panglossian marketers who goes, you know, everything that um, people do. Because the reason I mentioned Dealey Bobbers and the wine box is there's an awful lot about human behaviour which is quite arbitrary, um, or at least defies con conventional logic in the sense that, as I mentioned, there are things like a cardo where once you've shopped there three times, you're probably going to be a cardo customer to some degree. I'm not suggesting 100% of your grocery uh, purchases come through a cardo, um, although 100% of mine do at the moment. Um, no, not quite, actually. Local Two local delis, actually, who deliver. I'd forgotten that. So we're, we're, we're doing this. It's a bit like Prada and Primark, you know, vast company and small local thing, nothing in the middle. Yes, it's like exactly. Nassim Taleb's barbell thing. Don't don't piss around in the middle. It's a waste of time. Do the extremes. That's, by the way, that's a vector. If you think about it, it's not a trend, isn't yeah. it? Mm. You know, if you think about it, you know, it's all, all these things where you do, you go a bit that way and you overcompensate somewhere else. Oh, and sorry, on Monday, the red pizza van comes around. Do we go there as well? So oh, we're basically, a it's a very strange world, this world of self-isolation, because my body is more local than it's been since I was, well, pro probably since I was three years old in terms of staying mostly in the same place. But my mind, uh, because of Zoom, for the joy of Zoom, I think I've virtually visited, and this is having serious meetings with Ogilvy people and others, I think it's like 23 countries since lockdown began. Mm. Now, you know, I've had days where I'm in three continents on the, or, you know, four, have I managed four? Yes, I've managed four. Four continents in the same day. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know, WPP could buy me a Learjet and I wouldn't be able to do that. I mean, this thing, now, the interesting thing about Zoom, the reason I say about wine boxes and dealy bobbers is dealy bobbers were silly. I mean, they were fun, but they were silly. And so once the novelty wore off, they died out. Wine boxes were actually a really good idea that didn't deserve to die out, but for all sorts of other reasons, like status signaling, it did. You know, now maybe it'll make a comeback where people who are immune, who haven't acquired immunity to the wine box, a new generation of susceptible individuals, this is why marketing is a bit like virology, will come up and go, oh, that wine box is a good idea. Whereas I would go, oh, it's a bit 1977, right? Coach travel is an interesting one because, you know, I last traveled by coach in... I think it was 1980-something. And bear in mind, this was a journey where the coach went from, I think it was Plymouth to Kings Lynn. And I was travelling from Bristol to Cambridge on the coach. Now, I'd had a drink or two before I boarded the coach. I boarded in Bristol. The first break for a piss was in Cambridge. Because I can remember being practically hospitalised when I got off that bloody thing, Okay. <laughs> Now, it was atrocious. Uh, you know, when I last rode on a coach, I was surprised to notice they all have toilets. They're actually quite comfortable. The suspension's quite good. They're quiet. You even get a film playing. 
But my, you know, I've been immunized to coaches for 40 years of my life, effectively immune to the blandishments of Megabus and National Express, because my memory of the coach is a 1980s memory. So the wine box is an interesting one, because there was nothing about it that was a bad idea in practical, rational terms. Uh, there were all sorts of, I think, status problems and issues, but it was basically a very good idea. You know, oxygen didn't get into the wine. It was environmentally more friendly because most of the box was recyclable. Loads of things, really, to recommend it. And it's I would... easier to ship and, st and store. Yeah, no, no, because well. it's, it's a cube. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and not fragile and so on. And Now, the interesting thing that occurred to me with Zoom and video conferencing is that it had a problem because... It came free and crap in the fairly early days of the internet. And the problem was that when it was novel, it was crap. And by the time it stopped being crap, it was no longer novel. So by the time Zoom actually got good, most of your colleagues, if you suggested, let's do a video conference, their memory of video conference was a series of botched Skype calls in the, you know, in the early 2000s where 20% of the time on the meeting was spent going, Dave, you're on mute, you know. So you can quite often have a category which, in a way, you know, just as there's a theory that some people are partially immune to the coronavirus because they've contracted other colds, which has given them some degree of partial immunity, okay, there is a case where there are categories which undeservedly die because something similar failed beforehand because it's, it's something that's been fascinating me by the way for because i've been a zoom advocate for about two years two and a half years i actually mandate my colleagues have zoom fridays where they all work from home and all work over zoom because i argue that you're more productive if you have a mixture of different modes in the course of your working week and you're more productive still if you all synchronize those different modes so synchronicity of of flexible working you know, will still play an important part. You know, if everybody works from home on a random day of the week, it's not going to work so well as if everybody does it on Monday, something like that. One of the things that fascinates me is because the wine box didn't deserve to fail and it probably by its failure kind of stigmatised the idea for the next 20 or 30 years. And you almost have to wait for immune people to die before you can try relaunching a different wine container. But I mean, again, the one thing I disagree with Ritson about is there are some behaviours which people don't reverse. You know, the Philips air fryer, which is one of the things I evangelise repeatedly on my talks, is a thing which no, most people don't get the point. But most people who get one get the point and never get never go back. Uh, you know, most people don't revert from a microwave. There'll be a few people who do. There are people who don't have television still, but I think that's actually counter signalling. Because if you notice, if you know anybody without a television, they can't help going on and on and on about the fact they don't have a fucking television. You know, so it's done for some kind of signaling purpose, I think. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it, where if you don't know somebody that does not have a television, it's because that is true. Because if you did know, they would have made damn they sure. Would have, they would have made absolutely aware. sure. In fact, in fact, the moment you met them, they would have gone, oh, hi, Mark, I'm Dave. I haven't got a television. That would have been pretty much their introduction. Yeah. There's a weird snobbery in cooking where you don't have a microwave, which is slightly comical, because if you actually talk honestly to a Michelin two or three star chef and say, what's the most important thing in your kitchen? They actually say the microwave. <laughs> but there's a kind of weird mythology that an authentic cook has a 19th century kitchen, which I strongly suspect is bullshit. I think really, really good cooks will try any bit of gadgetry that might give them an advantage. Why wouldn't you?
you know, it's it's you know. like it's the it's the concept of having um two thousand year old pink Himalayan salt in your kitchen and then realizing it has a sell by date on the packet as well. <laughs> Did you discover that is fantastic? So the yeah, salt is two thousand years old. It's been happily existing as sodium chloride. <laughs> And being pink for the last two thousand years, but my God, yeah. no, no, you've got to use it by June. You've got to use it by June. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think, I think on that note, Rory, we'll end there. Thank you very much for being a guest. It's been it's a pleasure. Been a massive thank you then to Rory Sutherland for joining me on the podcast. And so to recap, what have we learnt? The two biggest drivers of human behaviour are habit and social copying. Use status as a primary currency for your characters because the reality is most of us seek the goals we seek because of the status they afford us. Some behaviours, once adopted, never reverse. When designing a character or writing the next stage of their adventure, be careful how far you stray from the aspects of their personality that define them. When recovered from a threat, people become more extreme versions of themselves. Could you use a physical or existential threat to up the ante on a character that's been set in stone for some time? Our old memories of the way certain products work impact how we expect similar products to work, even if that's an unfair assessment. Perhaps there's a genre or plot structure that's failed you or another writer in the past. If you've been too concerned to reimagine because of its past failings, consider trying anyway. Maybe, like the wine box, it just simply wasn't ready for the world when the idea was first conjured up. And on that note, Taking a point that Rory made slightly out of context, but it's a good motto for writers who are struggling, it's not that it doesn't work, it's just that it's yet to work. And perhaps, even if unwittingly, Rory's advice of working in a different setting from time to time is incredibly useful for writers to consider. Something as simple as changing your environment might help you break out of a funk or help to combat the dreaded writer's block. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes release weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Coming up next week, we'll be in conversation with singer-songwriter and country music star Liv Austin. As much as I love a good metaphor and all these, you know, images that you can create with your lyrics, it's also really, really refreshing to listen to a song where somebody just says exactly the words that they want to say. And and there's poetry in, in that simplicity. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.